All right. The mystery of the chairs will be uh, revealed in just a few more minutes. Just be patient. We'll tell you about the chairs. Um, For the last few weeks, we've been discussing elements of the new covenant. That's what we've been talking about. And last week in particular, we looked at the new covenant and how it is accompanied by better promises, right? Um, And because it has better promises, well, then it is a better covenant. That's the idea I hear. And we were told at the end of uh, the passage last week that the old covenant is no longer needed. In fact, in verse 13 of chapter 8, it said this, a new covenant, or sorry, in that he says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Well, that is a prophetic verse because not five years after it was written, the temple was destroyed and all of the earthly uh, priestly functions ceased. So in effect, the old covenant ended then as well, because there was no longer a temple or an altar or any kind of priestly uh, roles. But now we come to chapter 9, and here the author does something interesting. He takes us back to the earthly sanctuary, the tabernacle, to look at its furnishings, to look at the priestly service on earth. And this is going to take us way back into the Old uh, Testament. Now, why does he uh, do this? Well, Ultimately, the reason that he does this is to contrast it with the heavenly sanctuary. And we've been kind of setting this up. And that is where Jesus, our high priest, ministers today. Jesus isn't your high priest in some room on earth like the high priest had to do before. He ministers in the very presence of God. And so he is going to, the author is going to take us there in a little, a little while later. But here... He doesn't really elaborate on the purpose or the function of um, everything that's described here in the earthly sanctuary. In fact, just look at verse 5, if you would. Very last sentence of verse 5 of chapter 9. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. So he is going to give us the things that are in the earthly tabernacle. He's just basically going to to list them uh, for us, but he won't go into detail. But we're going to take a a break from Hebrews for two months. We're going to be in Psalms. Um, And so guess what? I am going to take the time today to go into detail. I'm going to look at the things that he describes because I don't want to assume everybody knows exactly, first of all, what the tabernacle was, what was in the tabernacle, or why it was in there. But even beyond that, I think today you're going to be surprised. I think you'll see some spiritual significance uh, to it that maybe, maybe you haven't considered before. So today's meant to be fun. That's why there's a little bit of a different setup as well. We're going to have a good time looking at this stuff, and we're looking at the earthly sanctuary, okay? The earthly sanctuary is described in the first five verses of chapter 9. So let me just read those first. Verse 1 says, Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part, in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. And of these things we cannot now speak in detail. 
So let me pray, ask the Lord's blessing on our time. God, we thank you so much for your word, and Lord, we thank you for uh, what you're about to take us into. Uh, Lord, I know I'm going to take a little bit of liberty in looking into the spiritual significance of these things, Lord. So we just pray uh, that your Holy Spirit would be with us, that you would guide us, Lord, um, and that our, our hearts and minds would be open to some pretty amazing truths uh, and significance about this earthly uh, sanctuary that maybe will enlighten us as to the significance of the heavenly sanctuary. So be with us today, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, verse 1 really takes us back to the earthly sanctuary. It reminds us that the uh, the first covenant wasn't actually pointless. At this point, you might be going, uh, was there any reason for it? Well, it wasn't pointless, okay? There was a reason for the first covenant. The old, the old covenant, it set up regulations for worshiping God. If, this is, if, if you want to worship God, you want to approach God, this is how it's going to be uh, done. So it was regulated and it was defined. For mankind to properly worship God, he had to follow, as it says in verse 1, ordinances of divine service, and he had to do that in an earthly sanctuary. That was the way it was done. And it was done through a mediator, through priests. You didn't do it on your own. Now, originally, we're looking at the tabernacle. Later, this was kind of replicated in the temple, but we're talking about the tabernacle. So first, that's what we're looking at. Point one, we're just looking at the tabernacle because in verse two, he says, a tabernacle was prepared. Now, I'm going to put a picture up. We've looked at some pictures before, but we're going to look at quite a few pictures today. A picture of the tabernacle. Now, this picture is just, it's the whole thing. It's the outer court, so that's the whole fencing area you see, okay? And the nation of Israel pitched their tents all around the court, okay? In that court, you have an altar. That's where they would sacrifice the animals. You have a, 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 a labor, a basin, where they would wash their hands and all of that. And then the structure in the middle is the actual tabernacle, okay? So when I say tabernacle, we're talking about that uh, structure that's in the middle. It's covered with uh, three different layers of different animal skins, okay? That's what keeps it um, contained and, and quiet and preserved in, inside. Now, we've already seen that Moses built all of that according to a pattern. He was given a design on how to build that. And back in chapter 8, verse 5, that's when we were told it. It, said he, it says this, "...who served the copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain." So he was on a mountain, God gave him a pattern, and he made this. So I think we need to go back to the mountain. we got to go back to Exodus and look at some instructions. So today, I would definitely keep your marker in Hebrews 9, but we're going to spend a lot of time in Exodus 25. Um, and it's for a purpose. We need to go back to the beginning to see where all this came up from. Now, the first thing I'm going to show you is really significant. So hopefully you kind of uh, catch on to this. One of the first things you notice, and hopefully you notice this, when you're reading through the Old Testament, okay, and particularly Exodus 25 and on, you'll notice that the pattern of the tabernacle is actually described twice. Have you ever noticed that? You get through it all, and then you go a few chapters, and then you come to it all again. You're like, I just read all this. Uh, that's what happens. Let me show it to you. Exodus 25, all the way to 30, chapter 31, is the first description of the tabernacle. And now we're just going to walk through it rather quickly here. Okay, so look at chapter 25. The very first, this is where it starts. The very first thing that, that God does is he tells Moses to go to the people and to collect an offering from them. So to build that, he's going to collect all the resources from the people. 
get, get the skins, get the stuff, get everything from them. So look at verses one. Uh, uh, well, look at verses three to nine. This is the offering which you shall take from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, fine linen, goat's hair, ram skins dyed red, badger skins and acacia wood, oil for the light and spices for the anointing oil and for the sweet incense, onyx stones and stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them according to all that I show you, that is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings, just so you shall make it. So notice, collect an offering, but then I want you to take that and, and then according to a pattern I'm going to give you, I want you to make everything. But he hasn't given them a pattern. Or he hasn't told them yet what to make, right? So, so notice, that's the first time he says, now there's a pattern and I want you to make it like this. The next thing we come across is the furniture. And in and, and, and chapter 25 here, chapter 25, verses 10 to, to 39 Three items of furniture are described, the Ark of the Testimony, the Table of the Showbread, and the Gold Lampstand. And then you get to verse 40. Look at verse 40. And see to it that you make them according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. So again, now I'm going to give you a little bit more and make sure you make these things according to the pattern. That's the furniture. And then he comes to the tabernacle itself in, in chapter 26, chapter 26, 1 all the way to 29, verse 29, and then look at verse 30 of chapter 26. And you shall raise up the tabernacle according to its pattern, which you were shown on the mountain. Okay, again, now we've got to the tabernacle, the one-room tabernacle, and he says, I want you to make it according to the pattern. Then as you go on, verses 31 onwards here, you have the dividing veil and the altar of burnt offerings, and it's going to go all the way to chapter 27, verse 8. Go to 27, 8. And you shall make it hollow with boards as it was shown you on the mountain. Again, referring to that pattern. So they shall make it. And then it goes into the priestly garments, the altar of incense, the bronze laver, all those things. Chapter 27, all the way to 31. Go all the way to 31, verse 11. And here again, we come to an ending point. Make it all according to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. So it's like God is giving them, I want you to do this, but make it according to a pattern. I want you to make this, but make it according to the pattern. I'm going to keep, make this, but do it as I commanded you over and over again. And then you get here and you know this part well, the golden calf incident. Right After all that, then the golden calf thing happens and you kind of forget about all that. And then you come to um, chapter 35. And it all starts over again. This is when you have the deja vu. You start reading this. Well, I've read this already, but it's when they're actually building it. It's the same details. It's the same measurements. It's the same everything. And you're reading it all a second time. So listen, the Holy Spirit wrote scripture, yes? So the Holy Spirit went through the trouble of making sure all of these specific details were not in here once, two times which means it must be important. But let's be honest, isn't this the part we kind of go, yeah, yeah, okay, a cubit and uh, boards and uh, ram skins, and you're just flipping through this stuff, right? And especially when you come to it twice. Well, there's significance to it that I want to show you today. Let's go back to the tabernacle structure itself because that's where Hebrews says, he said, we're going to make this according to the tabernacle. Go back to chapter 26, and we'll start, we'll start with the tabernacle because uh, Hebrews is... Starting there. He said a tabernacle was prepared. Well, how was it 
prepared. Well, in chapter 26, just go to verses 15 to 18. We'll just pick out this little section here. It says, For the tabernacle you shall make the boards of acacia wood standing upright. Ten cubits shall be the length of a board, and a cubit and a half shall be the width of each board. Two tenons shall be in each board for binding one to another. Thus you shall make for all the boards of the tabernacle. So here are the measurements of the tabernacle. They're given to us, but they're given to us in cubits. A cubit was just an ancient standard of measurement that typically went from the bottom of your elbow to the tip of your fingers. And I know that varies slightly with some people, but it's generally 18 inches long. That's about the measurement there. So it's roughly 18 inches. And so we're given a width of a cubit and a half. Uh, for each board, and we're given 20 boards. So that is 45 feet long and 15 feet wide. An interesting shape. You are all sitting in the tabernacle right now. Take a look around. This front row is the very front of the tabernacle all the way to the back of the wall. So check it out. That's the width, and that's the length. That's why we did this. Now go home. I'm just kidding. What's that? 45 feet long and 15 feet wide. That whole structure, that building you saw in the middle of that picture, that is this. You're in it. Pretty cool, right? All right, I didn't go further than that. We couldn't find badger skins. Anyway, this is as far as we got. (laughs) All right, but notice this is called, this place is called the holy place. The whole thing is called the holy place. So you're in a holy place. But notice this. This is significant. It was first constructed as one room. Did you see that? When we got to chapter 26, we got to verse 30. It was one room. And there is given no instruction at all to divide this room. Instead, in verse 30, it says, And you shall raise up the tabernacle according to its pattern, which you were shown on the mountain. The pattern thus far is this, one undivided room. That's very important. What's the significance of this being a single undivided room? Well, I know that we can overthink a lot of the things, huh? We, we, can, we can look for types in too many things. We could, we could look at this and look at every hook and nail and clasp and, and try to find spiritual significance. But I do believe this to be tremendously significant because I believe it to be according to the heavenly pattern. Remember, he's given a pattern, and it's a point to a heavenly sanctuary And so I believe the big empty room that is the initial pattern given represents the universe. I know, stay with me. It represents heaven and earth as it was meant to be. All one, God with man, all of it's open, all of it's together. There's no separation. Man walks with God, God is with man. And that is what we see in the Garden of Eden. You go back to Genesis and we just, we see that. Adam was placed in a garden. But he wasn't separated from God. God walked in the cool of the day in the garden. It was this idea of one place where all of it was sort of just all together. But Adam and Eve were deceived by the serpent, right? The serpent is Satan. And Satan, when you read about his fall in Ezekiel 28, we're told that he was said to be in the garden of God. So it's his garden. He's there. But before the fall of man, there was no division between man and God. They were together. But when the fall happened now, Adam and Eve, they were cursed, and then they were kicked out of the garden. Now, let me take you to Genesis 3, 22 to 23, and remind you of this. The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil, because they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden to till the ground from which he was taken. 
So they disobey by eating from one tree, and God's worried that they'll eat from another tree, but they'll live forever in their fallen, sinful state. So he says, instead, let's separate them from that tree of life. Now, where else does that tree of life appear? Well, it's in Revelation chapter 2, verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is Jesus speaking. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So that tree of life still exists, but exists in the midst of the paradise of God. Where is the paradise of God? Well, when we read on from Revelation, we find out this heavenly city comes down, right, out of the, out of the heavens. It comes down to earth. It's the new Jerusalem, and it comes to the new earth. And in Revelation 22, verse 2, it says this, In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore the twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nation. So, that tree of life that man was separated from is actually in heaven. So heaven and earth were really intended as, as one. Man had access to it. God kicked him out so that they wouldn't have access to it. And that, that separation came about because of sin. Now, stay with me here. The separating veil that's described in the very next section of Exodus 26 is for that very reason. Look at Exodus 26 and look at verse 31 and 32. Now he describes it. You shall make a veil woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine woven linen. It shall be woven with an artistic design of cherubim, which are angels. You shall hang it upon the four pillars of acacia wood overlaid with gold. Their hooks shall be gold upon four sockets of uh, silver. So look at this tabernacle picture again. All right. Now this, this one is a cutaway, okay, just to help us here. So you can kind of see where the, the, the veil that they're talking about would have been placed. It would have been a third of the room. So if it's 45 feet long, a third of that is 15 feet, right? So 15 by 15 by 15. It's that back, back veil. You see that right there? So that's, that's the part they're, they're separating there. Now that section there that is going to be 15 by 15 by 15 means it's shaped like a cube. It's a perfect cube. Now, that is significant for another reason. Where else in Scripture do we see a cube-like structure? It is in our study from last summer. Do you remember it? The heavenly city coming out of Jerusalem. This is not an actual picture, by the way. Um, this is an artist's rendition of it. But the heavenly city that comes down um, is described as a perfect cube. In Revelation 21, it's described in verses 15 to 16. And he who talked with me had a gold reed to measure the city, its gates, and its wall. The city is laid out as a square. Its length is as great as its breadth. And he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs. Its length, breadth, and height are equal. And we told you that about 1,500 miles high, wide, and long. So it's a huge, huge cube. It's a heavenly city shaped like a cube, which is just like the inner room where that veil is placed, which is called the most holy place, or the holiest of holy. So the whole, whole thing is called the holy place. The veil, and behind the veil, is called the most holy place. So the earthly sanctuary, which represents, I told you, heaven and earth, undivided, now gets divided. The inner room is shaped like a cube, and that represents heaven, the dwelling place of God. And when you get to Revelation 21, that's exactly what he says. Now God will dwell with man. We looked at this a couple weeks ago. So it's now separated from uh, earth and from man by, by a curtain. There's just a curtain that's uh, there. And that curtain is woven with an artistic design of cherubim. So angels. 
angels guard the way into the Holy of Holies, and they're on a, a, a veil, on a, on a curtain. Well, angels also uh, guarded something when man was kicked out of the garden. And in Genesis 3, 24, he drove out the man. He placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword, which turned every way. Why? To guard the way to the tree of life, which is in the presence of God. So here's the thing. The tabernacle, in its structure and its in design, was meant to illustrate that man could no longer freely come to God. We lost Eden. It's a different place. Our sin separated us from him. Now, later in chapter 9 of Hebrews, he's going to elaborate on the priestly sacrifices, and we're going to talk about all that uh, later in eight weeks when we come back to it and the burnt offerings and all that. But in our section, the author just, he only mentions the internal furnishings of the earthly sanctuary. That's all he's doing here. But before we look at them, I want to take you back to Exodus 26, if you're there. Uh, we began by looking at the tabernacle, right here in Exodus 26, because that's what the author of Hebrews mentioned first, the tabernacle. But I told you that this isn't the first thing they're instructed to build. Do you remember that? What was the first thing they're instructed to, to build? It's in chapter 25. First, they make a collection, and they, they build something. Now, this is what's interesting. If the tabernacle represents heaven and earth, all right? just this, the creation. What could possibly exist before that? If, if that was created, and that's creation, heaven and earth, could something have come before that? What could you build that existed before that? Well, God gives them in this blueprint three things. Three things that existed before heaven and earth. Could you think of anything, any three things that existed before heaven and earth? And maybe saying three things is a little misleading to say it that way. But this pattern, these three things, I believe, represent the one thing that was in existence before heaven and earth, and that is our triune God. You have the Ark of the Testimony, the table of showbread, and the gold lampstand first before you have any structure to put them in. I want you to build these three things first. Interesting. Let's see if that holds water. But Let's go the, in, uh, through these things in the order that the author of Hebrews does. So in Hebrews chapter 2, he just moves on to the lampstand. That's the first thing he picks out that is um, inside. One of the, it's one of the furnishings of this tabernacle. So in verse 2 of, of Hebrews, it just simply says uh, this, A tabernacle was prepared, the first part in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. Okay. Now, when he says the first part, he's talking about the outer room outside that veil, not that inner room. Okay. So that's the outer part. Now, I'll show you a picture of a lampstand here. This uh, this picture of lampstand is actually in Israel. It's in Jerusalem today. Uh, that is in a, a glass case yeah, because they have it ready to go. They're waiting for a temple. So they actually have all the utensils and all the furnishings ready to be placed in the temple. They just need the temple, and they have it on display right there. You just take a picture of it. That's what the lampstand would have looked like. It would have been a solid gold lampstand crafted to look like a, a golden plant with flowers and buds, and uh, it would have been on the left side as the priest entered the room, and obviously it had a practical use. You had three layers of animal skins covering the structure. You had no light. There were no windows, so this provided light. But the lampstand was fueled by something to give it light. It was fueled by olive oil. Now, this is significant, significant because oil is very, very significant in the Old Testament. Oil was used in the Old Testament to anoint 
three classes of people, prophets, priests, and kings. And to give you an example, uh, 1 Samuel 16, 13, Samuel's going to anoint David as king. And then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. In the Old Testament, the anointing symbolized that the Holy Spirit had come upon that person to enable them to fulfill their ministry, prophet, priest, or king. So for David, it was to help him fulfill the ministry of king of Israel. So it was symbolic of the Holy Spirit. Now, there's an incredible picture of this in Zechariah. This is not just one example. But here's a long passage of Scripture. Zechariah gives this vision of this this lampstand, and it's got bowls on it, and it's got trees next to it, and it's just overflowing with oil. It says this, Now the angel who talked with me came back and awakened me as a man who was wakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, What do you see? So I said, I am looking, and there is a lampstand of solid gold with a bowl on top of it, and on the stand seven lamps with seven pipes to the seven lamps. Two olives, olive trees are by it, one at the right of the bowl, one uh, other at the, its left. And so I answered and spoke to the angel who talked with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? And then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. So he answered me and said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. This wonderful vision of all this overflowing oil, an endless supply of oil coming from these trees into this lamp. He says, what does all this mean? And he says that it's not by your might, not by your power, but by the Holy Spirit. It was a symbol of the Spirit's power. Now, there is a sense in which the lamp stand who gives light is Jesus, right? Because Jesus said, well, I am the light of the world. But let's think about it. The light that he spoke of is spiritual illumination, isn't it? We walked in darkness. We weren't literally blind. We walked in spiritual darkness, and then we were lightened to the truth, and now we have spiritual sight. But who gives us that? Who gives us spiritual illumination? Is it not the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is the one that convicts of sin. We have all that through Him. In fact, look at these verses we looked at last week in John 14, 16 to 18. Jesus said, I will pray the Father, and He will give you another helper, that He may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth. Whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And then he goes on to say, I will not leave you orphans, I will come to you. So in the one sense, Jesus says, I'm going to send a helper, the Holy Spirit, to you, and in that way, I'm not going to leave you orphans, I'm coming to you. But it's Jesus coming to us or the Holy Spirit come to you. See, he comes to us through the Holy Spirit. So this is the idea. Jesus is indeed our light, but he's our light through the Holy Spirit. I believe that lampstand represents the Holy Spirit, right? One one person of the triune God that existed before heaven and earth, before the the, the universe. The second piece that's listed there in, in our passage is the table and the showbread, okay? The table and the showbread is a picture here of, of a table and a showbread as well. I think I have. There it is. It would have been a wooden table overlaid with gold, and it had carrying poles like you see there. It would have been on the the right side of the room as you entered, and it would have been about three feet long and one and a half feet wide and two and a quarter feet tall. It's not that that big. And the table had one purpose. In Exodus 25, 30, it says this, and you shall set the showbread on the table before me always. It was 
bread on this table, and it had to be before God in that tabernacle all the time. So what was the show bread then? That's significant. It's in Leviticus 24, another long passage, but I'll put it up on the screen for you. This gives us the details. You shall take fine flour and bake 12 cakes with it. Two-tenths of an ephah shall be in each cake, and you shall set them in two rows, like you saw there, six in a row, on the pure gold table before the Lord. And you shall put pure frankincense on each row, that it may be on the bread for every memorial, an offering made by fire to the Lord. Every Sabbath he shall set it in order before the Lord continually, being taken from the children of Israel by an everlasting covenant. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, for it is most holy to him from the offerings of the Lord made by fire by a perpetual statute. So here, every Sabbath, 12 loaves of bread, okay, were placed on this, one for each of the 12 tribes. And at the end of the week, the priests and only the priests could eat the bread. But the bread had to be placed and it had to be eaten in a holy place, in the presence of the Lord. It was ever present in the holy place. Now, most translations, if you don't have a New King James Bible before you, render this as the bread of the presence. Maybe yours doesn't say show bread. Maybe it does say bread of presence. Most translations say that. The reason is the bread is always in the presence of God. It's always in the holy place. It's always before the Lord. Well, Jesus himself said that he was the bread of life, didn't he? That he was the bread of life. That means we, we have everything we need from him. In John six thirty five, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Meaning he is our true sustenance. When we come to him, we never need anything more, uh, any life-sustaining resources of any kind from him. He gives us everything that we need. And in addition, when we come to him, we come before the presence of the Lord. He's always in the presence of the Lord. That, isn't that where he's ministering today? He's in the presence of the Lord. So when you come to, to Jesus, you come, you come to God. That's the great dilemma. How do we get to God? we got to go to someone who's in the presence. It's our high priest who gets us into the presence of the Lord. So the table of showbread, very representative of Jesus and the constant presence of the Lord. Now, there's another piece mentioned in Hebrews, and I'll just look at that real quick. Back in Hebrews 9, it, it ends... In that first part, it ends with the showbread, um, and then it talks about the sanctuary there. So in verse 3, it says this, Behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle which is called the holiest of all, so that's now we're going behind the veil, okay, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that held the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Now, the author here in Hebrews clearly takes us beyond the veil, doesn't he? He says, now we're going behind the second veil, into the holiest of all, the most holy place. And here he mentions two pieces of furniture, the first being the golden censer. Got a picture here for you, the golden censer. Uh, there, it's just a recreation of it. Um, and it's really described in Exodus 30. So if you've you got a finger in Exodus, just go a few chapters up to Exodus 30. And uh, this is a very significant piece of uh, furnishing as well. It's not one of the first three made, but the author of Hebrews d just mentions it now, so we're going to it now. But in Exodus chapter 30, he says, You shall make an altar to burn incense on. So it's the altar of incense. You shall make it of acacia wood. A cubit shall be its length, and a cubit its width. It shall be square, and two cubits shall be its height. Its horns shall be of one piece with it. And you shall overlay its top 
its sides all around and its horns with pure gold, and you shall make for it a molding of gold all around. Two gold rings you shall make for it under the molding on both its sides. You shall place them on its two sides, and they will be holders for the poles with which to bear it. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put it before the veil. That is before the Ark of the Testimony. And that's significant. It's before the veil. That is before the Ark of the Testimony. Before the mercy seat. That is over the testimony where I will meet with you. Aaron shall burn on it sweet incense every morning when he tends the lamps. He shall burn incense on it. And when Aaron lights the lamps at twilight, he shall burn incense on it, a perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your generations. You shall not offer strange incense on it, or a burnt offering, or a grain offering, nor shall you pour a drink offering on it. And Aaron shall make atonement upon its horns once a year. With the blood of the sin offering of atonement once a year, he shall make atonement upon it throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. Now notice a few things here. Notice first its placement. It's placed before the veil, that is before the ark of the testimony. Now, I'm going to go back to that cutaway picture real quick. If I can get on there and stay in the mic. All right, here we go. So here's the, here's the uh, entrance, and here's first the lampstand. Here's the table of showbread. Uh, right? So the author has given us this piece and this piece. So it's almost as if he's entered and he's going in order of what you see when you come, come in. Now he's gone to this piece, the altar of incense. And you can see in this picture that it's before the veil that is before the ark, okay? But Hebrews said that we were behind the second veil. Very interesting. But first, we'll just address this, okay? Here is where it's placed because Exodus clearly tells us that this is where it should be. Now, we know this is where it's got to be because twice a day in morning, okay, and in twilight, the high priest or the priest had to go here and offer incense on it, didn't they? But if it was behind the veil, that couldn't happen because the high priest went back there, and he only went back there once a year. So it has to be on this side of the veil, because twice a day you offered incense on it. It's very significant, very important to note that. All right. So that's the first part of it, and we'll get to that in a minute. All right. Um, In Hebrews, he describes it, seemingly describes it, in the Holy of Holies, not the holy place. But here in the picture, it's in the Holy uh, holy place. Now, in Exodus 30, as we read here, put that back, Exodus 30, there is a procedure. That priest had to offer that incense on it twice a day, but also, he also had to make atonement for the sins of the people on it. Maybe you noticed that. So, that's significant in understanding why the author of Hebrews mentions it almost as if it's behind the second veil. Um, he's not trying to tell us that it's there, He's not mistaken. He's not confused. What the author has in view here, and you'll see that when we come back into it next time, is he has the procedure that's taken on the Day of Atonement. He's looking at that because the whole subject is Jesus atoning for our sins. Remember, that happens one day a year. And as I read in in, in Exodus 30, the, the, the process was first the priest came in there with that blood of the bull of the goat, and he actually put blood on the horns of that altar of incense, okay? Then he took some of the incense, and he went behind the veil, and then he had the incense over the mercy seat and over the ark. That was the process on the Day of Atonement, and then he offered the blood on the mercy seat uh, as well. 
Um, and that's really the whole purpose of bringing all this up because he's trying to look at Jesus as our high uh, priest and how he functions on the day of atonement, going behind the veil into the presence of God. That's what that uh, symbolized. So first that blood is placed upon the horns and then he took incense on. And in fact, in Leviticus chapter 16, here's how it's described. It says, he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from the altar before the Lord. So that's that golden censer with his hands full of sweet incense beaten fine. And he should bring it inside the veil and he shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the testimony lest he die. So the high priest interacted with this altar in a couple of very significant ways. Can you see that? The blood on the Day of Atonement, bringing the incense from the altar. So that's why the author mentions it. But what does it represent? What does that altar represent? Well, I believe the altar itself represents God's people. And the incense that comes from it represents their prayers, the prayers of the saints. And that's not, um, that's a common, um, really, uh, picture that we see in Psalms 141, for example, gives us that. Psalm 141 says, let my prayer be set before you as incense, the lifting up of my hands, the evening sacrifice. So this is the idea that as the incense smoke rises up, it goes into the presence of God, that he, he gets our prayers in that manner. We're given a more vivid and detailed description in the actual throne room of God. In Revelation chapter 5, verse 8, it says this, now when he had taken the scroll, that's Jesus, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So it just tells us right there, the incense represents the prayers of the saints. So now think about the position of this altar of incense. It's right before the veil, right before the separation. But who takes who takes your prayers right into the very presence of God? The high priest did that. He took the incense right into the presence of God. He atoned for the sins. He put it on the horns of that altar, and then he went into the presence of God, and he atoned for the sins of the people on the mercy seat. See, Jesus is our great high priest. He takes our prayers right into the very presence of God. That incense rising from his people are the prayers. So I believe that whole, whole uh, altar there represents us, God's people. And the final piece is probably the most well-known piece of all. And the final piece that he mentions in Hebrews is the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant is probably mostly well-known because of that great movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Most people know what it is. Um, I'll show you a picture of the Ark here. Probably don't, uh, don't need to really, but there's a picture of the uh, Ark. It was a box about three feet, nine inches long, two feet, three inches wide, and two feet high. So it's still not a, a huge uh, structure would overlay with gold again. But for Israel, what was the significance of the ark? Well, it represented the throne of God. It was the symbol of his presence and his power. And it's very well il- illustrated in a defeat that they had against the Philistines. You might remember that. They lost a battle to the Philistines, and then one bright bloke said, oh, I know what we lost. We, we, we left God back at the camp because he was talking about the ark. We left God. Someone go back and get God and bring him, and then we'll win this thing. And so they ran back, and they brought the ark back into the camp, and they were crazy about it because, well, they thought, well, God's here, and now we'll win. And it's recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 4, verses 4 to 5. So when the people sent to Shiloh, that's where the ark was kept, that they might bring from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas, 
were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. And when the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted so loudly that the earth shook. God has come into the camp, and now we're going to win. All right. So that was the picture of what the, the Ark was for them. God's presence, his power, his, his throne. Now notice that the Ark was placed somewhere in this, um, in this tabernacle. Behind the veil, wasn't it? Behind that veil, which represented heaven. Heaven separated from man. Heaven separated from man by a veil. God's presence separated from us. The only way into his presence once a year, the high priest. Now, this, this has given us this idea, right, that, that we cannot come uh, to God. Now, looking back at our picture, the author's going to get there in a minute, but the author wants us to also see that there were these, these things that were in this, this ark, and there were things in the ark, and I got a little picture that kind of shows the contents, but it's, it's really kind of hard to see. But three things are mentioned that were contained in the ark, and one is the golden pot that had the manna. That's what it said. Now, God provided for his people when they were wandering in the wilderness. You had a million plus people wandering in the wilderness. How are they going to feed them all? He gave them a supernatural provision called manna, right? It was manna from heaven. And they were to take some of that manna and put it in a gold pot and keep it. In Exodus 16.33, Moses said to Aaron, take a pot and put an omer of manna in it and lay it before the Lord to be kept for your generations. So that's one thing they were to keep before the Lord. The second thing mentioned is Aaron's rod that budded. Now, that's a little longer story, but you might remember when, when Aaron was chosen to be the high priest, Korah and his friends didn't really like this little favoritism going on. They said, well, we can all be priests. We're all holy before the Lord. And they tried to rebel against God, and God opened up the earth and swallowed them. You remember that? Well, to, to prove it after that, he said, I'll tell you what. Everyone who thinks they can be a priest, bring a rod, one from each family, put it before the Lord. And the next day, whichever rod, and we're talking about like a walking stick, okay? Whichever rod has blossomed, that's the man I chose. So in Numbers chapter 17, verses, verses 8 to 10, this, we find the result. Now it came to pass on the next day that Moses went into the tabernacle of witness, and behold, the rod of Aaron of the house of Levi had sprouted and put forth buds, had produced blossoms, and yielded ripe albins. So it really blossomed. And then in verse 10, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Bring Aaron's rod back before the testimony to be kept as a sign against the rebels that you may put their complaints away from me lest they die. So that was a second thing that was to be kept to remind people that God chooses the high priest. God chooses the person that brings man into his presence. The last thing mentioned are the tablets of the covenant. The tablets are the Ten Commandments, also called the testimony. <clears throat> God commanded that those be placed into the ark as well in Exodus 25, 16. He said, you shall put it into the ark of the testimony, sorry, you shall put into the ark the testimony, which I will give you. So those three things, the pot of manna, that's a reminder that, that God provided uh, life for his people, and life ultimately comes to us through whom? Jesus Christ. He gave the rod of Aaron, which was a reminder that access to God comes about by a high priest of his choosing, ultimately fulfilled by who? Jesus Christ. And the tablets of the testimony are a reminder that God's perfect standard never diminishes. He's always holy, perfect, and righteous, and only those who are holy, perfect, and righteous may approach him. And of course, Jesus gave us his perfect righteousness, and so we may approach him. Amazing. So God 
sitting upon his throne in heaven in this cube-like structure, if you want to picture that way. We have the tabernacle, a third of it sealed off by a veil. The ark back there, representing God's presence, separated from the rest of mankind. And then you have in verse 5 something else described in Hebrews 9. And in verse 5 he says, And above it, so above, remember we're behind the veil now, we're looking at the ark. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. So here, this is the mercy seat. I'll focus on that to begin with. What is the significance of the mercy seat? One more time, I'll take you back to Exodus 25. Exodus 25 describes this, and, uh, and we'll, we'll be done with going back to Exodus. Exodus 25, 17 to 22. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. It literally is just a lid for the ark, okay? Two and a half cubits shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its width. And you shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work, you shall make them at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end, and the other cherub at the other end. You shall make the cherubim at the two ends of it, of one piece with the mercy seat. And the cherubim shall stretch out their wings above, covering the mercy seat with their wings. And they shall, be, they shall face one another. The faces of the cherubim shall be toward the mercy seat. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony, or the Ten Commandments, that I will give you. And there I will meet with you, and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are on the ark of the testimony, about everything which I will give you in commandment to the children of Israel." So this mercy seat is a great, great picture. And you saw the ark earlier. It was a lid with the angels and their wings stretched out, and they're looking down the mercy seat. And here we have a wonderful picture of the angels that surround the throne room of God. If that's his throne, you would expect to see angels, heavenly beings that dwell in heaven. And God is known throughout the Old Testament to dwell between the cherubim. In Psalm 99, verse 1, it says this, The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He dwells between the cherubim. Let the earth be moved. So his position of, of power between the cherubim, that's where he reigns from. And that's significant. That's where his throne is. Isaiah says a similar thing. Isaiah 37, 16, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, the one who dwells between the cherubim, you are God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. So, there you have God dwelling there, tucked back at the rear of the tabernacle, the far end, behind a veil, meaning you cannot access him except once a year and except for a, a, through a particular person, that, that high priest. He's back there. And in Leviticus 16, uh, verse 2, reiterates this. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at just any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat which is on the ark lest he die for i will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat it was a scary scary thing the high priest had a rope on him and and bells on the hem of his garment because they wanted to hear those bells moving they knew he was still alive and the bells stopped moving you thought well god killed him (laughs) he went in there unclean he did something wrong and they could just tug him out with a rope because i ain't going in there after him that was the idea God would appear before you in that mercy seat. So there again, the mercy seat was mentioned in Leviticus 
That's just to cover the ark. But mercy seat, that's, that's a great name for a throne, isn't it? His mercy seat is his throne. And Leviticus 16 describes the process a little bit more, verses 14 to 15. When the high priest gets in there, he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat on the east side. And before the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times, the number of perfection. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, bring its blood inside the veil, do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bull, and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. So blood is being brought into the presence of God. Blood is being poured out onto the mercy seat. And I'm just going to read to you something that Tom Parsons said because he explains this very well. God says in Exodus 25, 22, that it is precisely there above the cover between the two cherubim that he will meet with humanity. Remember that? He's going to meet there with mankind. That place of meeting and atonement, the lid of the ark, is rightly called a mercy seat. It symbolically absorbed the judgment of God so that there could be a meeting with humanity. The ark and its mercy seat presents the impossible possibility, the acceptance of sinners into the throne room of the Father. Jesus is our mercy seat. In fact, the word uh, mercy seat is a very particular word that's used in a great verse to picture Jesus as the mercy seat. He absorbed the wrath of the Father so that we might have access to him. And in 1 John 2, 2, it says this, And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. That word, propitiation, hilasterion, relates to the mercy seat because it's the same word in the Septuagint, so the Greek translation of the Old Testament, same word, Use Nexus 25, 17 of the mercy seat. Jesus absorbed the wrath of God. God's throne of judgment is actually based in mercy, isn't it? It's the mercy seat. Now, that takes us to the end of Hebrews 9, verses 1 to 5. He's just mentioned those. I obviously went into those in depth because he said, we're not going to go into these things in detail. But I wanted you to... I wanted you to maybe get a glimpse of, of maybe what more significance could God have had with this earthly building. This structure the size of where you are all sitting today represented something pretty uh, amazing. And I want to leave you with just a few pictures. Okay, Look at a picture. I just <laughs> made these up. I drew them myself, so they're not epic, okay? <laughs> so there, there's the picture, okay? You've got the whole framed tabernacle, and then you've got a veil, and on the left side of the veil, you got the ark, okay? Now, on this side, you got the three pieces that we looked at. We've got the lampstand, the altar of incense in the middle, and you've got the, the table of showbread, okay? Now, we're going to look at another picture. Now, look at that. You have the Father behind the veil, God the Father. You have God the Son, Jesus, that's the table of showbread. You've got the Holy Spirit there. And you have the church there, separated from him, separated by that veil. Now, we're going to remove all that. And we're going to do one more picture. So, you have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And where is God's people? Where are they? Smack dab in the middle. Right in the middle. God gave Moses a pattern to build some structure in the wilderness. 
You, you just go and do these things. And they just went about mindlessly. Yep, okay, I got to go do this. Got to go light a lamp. Got to make some bread. Got to go into the veil. Got to take some incense. Got to do these things. But all along, there was a more significant picture that one day God would provide an eternal atonement. That you wouldn't have to go through that rigmarole. You wouldn't have to go and, and, and do all these confessions and jump through all these hoops, kill animals, do all these good deeds, try to be as best you can. None of those things. He removes all of that and says, I'm just going to... I'm just going to pour my wrath upon my son. And if you just place your faith in him, then he gives you his spirit. Christ brings you into my presence, and we have you. You cannot lose your salvation. You are squarely in the middle of the triune God who gave himself for you. That is the picture there. That earthly sanctuary is just a picture of a heavenly reality. All right? And I just wanted to kind of like maybe lift our eyes a little bit beyond the mundane things we've been looking at. It's more just than a lampstand, more than just a table, more than just an ark. But there was a, a, an eternal significance to all those things. And we'll come back after eight weeks and we'll look at what the author wants to say about the heavenly sanctuary. He wants to look primarily at the atonement and, and for good reason. We're looking, the subject is Jesus as our high priest. But I think today, knowing that we're going to take a break for a couple of months from Hebrews, I wanted our people to understand something about salvation, <laughs> all right? If you have a high priest like Jesus, and he takes you into the presence of the Father, you don't lose that. You are secure. <laughs> you are there. He remembers your sins no more. They've been forgiven. They've been absorbed in the mercy seat who is Jesus Christ. And now we stand before the presence of this eternally holy God, not because we are holy or perfect, but because Jesus is. Isn't that incredible? So God is so good to give us these wonderful truths. I know it took some, some liberty to kind of look at some aspects of this, but I hope it was fun for you and encouraging. And next week, don't worry, we'll set your chairs back up the normal way and not throw you all off. But I wanted you to get an idea of the dimensions so you could kind of see it. It's like not that big of a structure, unless you were the one carrying the poles in the wilderness. And you would probably go, I wish it were smaller. But let me pray, and then we're going to close with a, with a song as well. God, thank you so much for this time in Hebrews that you've given us, Lord, this far, coming up to Hebrews 9. Uh, Lord, we thank you for uh, the wonderful picture of that, that earthly sanctuary built according to a pattern that you showed Moses. We, we don't have the pattern. We don't have the models or whatever you, you, you used, Lord, but we certainly can see the significance by what the rest of Scripture speaks of, of those few items in that big room. Lord, there, there are just a few things, and there was significance to each and, and every one of them. And today, Lord, we, we, we don't come into an earthly sanctuary. We, we, don't, we don't need to light the lampstand, and we don't need to uh, light incense, and we don't need to go behind a veil. We don't need to kill animals. We don't need to do any of those things. We're in your presence because Jesus is a mediator of a better covenant, and he ministers in the heavenly sanctuary. There's an eternal reality for us to grasp, and I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to do it. I know that we went through a lot of things, and maybe, maybe I lost people going back and forth, Lord, but I just pray that you would just use some of the truths of what we've seen today, Lord, to just cement in, in our hearts and in our minds that, first of all, your word is, is far deeper than maybe we often give it credit, but also, Lord, that you mean every little jot and tittle of your word. It's all significant. It all has purpose. It all has meaning. And ultimately, it all points to Christ. 
who is our great high priest. We thank you, Lord. We love you. We praise you for this time you've given us. Be glorified in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.